Hello and welcome to Today in Film, episode 27. I'm your host, Dominic Parry, and with me today is... Kevin Parry. Now, in today's episode, we're going to be talking about The Green Mile, uh, released in 1999, uh, starring Tom Hanks and Michael Clark Duncan as the two kind of main characters. Uh, so what do you think about this film? I thought it was a very uh, interesting and engaging film. Um, it ran to three hours, but to be fair, uh, as you were watching it, uh, you didn't get the impression that it was sort of dragging on. Uh, it was um, a very interesting watch and uh, one that I would recommend. Well, I think um, to do with the to do with the runtime, especially the kind of three-hour mark for a lot of films is like it's one that they don't go to because of how uh, tedious it can feel to watch some of them. But this, um, even though this has some kind of down-to-earth scenes. It doesn't kind of bore you with them. No, the, the, any any of the scenes where there is a repetition, um, it actually uh, builds on the scene that uh, that had preceded it. So, um, so you get to learn more about the characters or more about the plot, and they don't just go over things for the second time just for the sake of it. Um, it's uh, it's something which is central to the plot. Yeah, I think so. Um, it kind of has a semi-rotating cast with uh you've got the uh, what uh, the guy so you've got ed edward delacroix and uh wild bill those are the two that kind of stick around the longest and then you've those got those are those are both inmates yeah and then uh, never no, then you've the got uh, arlen bitterbuck who's the kind of first one to go yeah and uh that kind of like obviously the prison guards say the same throughout the entire thing, but the rotation of the cast in regards to the prisoners, it kind of keeps it fresh and keeps it moving. And they introduce each character and uh, and inform you of the bits that they want to inform, but uh, but keep you guessing about uh, some of the other aspects. So you know, in in some cases, why they're actually on death row, and. Um, and in some cases, that's explained in a bit more graphic detail. Um, why was why was the uh, the film called the Green Mile? Uh, so, well, it's it's basically they call the mile, like the bit between taking them from the cell to the electric chair, and because the floor is like faded lime color, they call it the Green Mile. Yeah, so that's it's that that's it essentially. But um, yeah, I think. The only two characters I think were told why they're there is Wild Bill and uh, Corfee. So it is kind of a plot device when they kind of tell you because they don't want you to lose sympathy for characters because they've done horrific acts. Yeah, yeah. The film starts with uh, a uh, a bunch of um, local farmers and uh, and various other people. Um, Hunting down a man in in the woods and uh, in the open fields, and um, and then the uh, the reason for that and, and and all the sort of detail of that then unfurls as the film goes on. Well, I think uh, that's it's obviously you're meant to go into this film. I'd assume you're meant to probably assume like think that he might be guilty at the start. However, at no point did I think he was kind of. The one who did it, no. Even you know, even though I've watched this twice now, and uh, you know, neither of the times do I think, 
how are they going to show like how this guy's guilty? Because you just kind of assume, and it's played in such a way where you're meant to assume that the guy's guilty. Yeah. So one of the main characters is Tom Hanks, um, who happens to be one of my favourite actors. Uh, I don't think I've seen a bad Tom Hanks film, and he plays it brilliantly. And the other main character is uh, Michael Clark Duncan, who's yeah. uh, who's a uh, made to look larger than life. He's a he's a hulking figure. Yeah, massive and uh, and sort of towers over the other members of the plot. Um, stands at six foot five inches um, in reality, but in in the film because of some of the shots and because of uh, the way that it's played, apparently they made the bed shorter to. Uh, Making him yeah. um, taller when he was in bed, um, so he's six foot five inches tall. And interestingly, um, James Cromwell, who plays Hal um, Hal Moores, is the um, the head warden, um, is actually an inch taller. But uh, but they never shot them yeah. sort of side by side. Um, Michael Clark Duncan uh, looked like an absolutely massive and overbearing character, and um, Body covered in scars and uh, and had obviously led a, a very interesting and uh, and hard life. Well, I think um, it's it's a it's a kind of film that has some very mysterious parts to it. Obviously, Stephen King, uh, an adaptation of it by uh, Frank, Frank Darabont. Frank Darabont, who uh, also did the Shawshank Redemption, and uh, an interesting point about that is. He gave the role of Paul Edgecombe in this to Tom Hanks because he had to take him out of uh, Shawshank Redemption. All right. So, so one of the early scenes in the film um, is of uh, an aged gent in uh, in a nursing home, and uh, and he takes to uh, going off for walks uh, with a couple of pieces of uh, dry toast in the mornings and uh and one of the staff there um reveals that he's uh, that he's on to him and uh, and he knows he's going off walking and uh, and what is he doing and uh and the guy says well i'd just like to walk and at that point you think well there's a perhaps a bit of escapism in that and mm. um, perhaps finds the uh the sort of situation in a nursing home a little bit overbearing and uh, and just wants to get out but the truth of that then becomes revealed later on. Well, I think one of the the one the one of the things I thought when you have the uh, old Paul character, the actor they chose, Dabs Greer, uh, I'm not sure if he comes from the same uh, state as Tom Hanks or whatever. Yeah. But the accent is extremely close, and it just works. Yeah. So it, you know, you can imagine this being an older version of Tom Hanks's character. And uh, very well cast, really, because he yeah. uh, he actually looks like an age version of Tom Hanks. Too, well, doesn't he? what they did try to do initially was have him uh, have Tom Hanks play the old guy, but they just thought that the makeup and stuff didn't look yeah. uh, good enough. Which I feel like if they did it now, they'd probably use some some kind of technology, and Tom Hanks would have played it. But I think it adds to the role, and it's not the same actor. Yeah. So the uh, the plot as it unfurls, then um, the, uh, the the opening scene is the uh, the chase through the uh, the farmland, and basically uh, Hick Farmer's uh, two daughters are, um, are 
taken so they, yeah. they disappeared and um and all the sort of local farmers are rounded up and uh, farm hands and they're out there with guns and uh and pitchforks and what have you chasing whoever it is down and uh they eventually come across a few bits of uh, cotton stuck to branches in the trees and stuff so they know they're on the right trail and then they eventually uh, find um coffee out in the middle of a stream or in the middle of a river uh with the two dead girls um either side he's obviously discovered them but they then immediately mm-hmm. assume that he's the uh the guilty party well i think um Michael Clark Duncan, who got nominated for an Oscar for his performance, as well as a number of different awards for his performance, he's definitely, I'd say, kind of one of the draws to this movie because he plays the character so well. Yeah. So what's his background then? Was he actually an actor? Was he formally trained? Or uh, Well, he, I, know that he's, I know that he started out as a kind of security guard on film sets and... I can't, remember, I can't remember who it was, but one of the famous rappers, uh, when they got killed, he kind of packed it in and somehow got into acting just through connections. Okay. So he actually got this film uh, because he was in uh, Armageddon, do you know that film? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's in that with, uh, I think it's Bruce Willis, isn't it? Mm. So Bruce Willis uh, basically passed his name on to Frank Darabont because they were struggling to find someone to play this, you know, hulking. Yeah. Big black figure. I, I I don't think they could have found a better well, character actually, a better the, um, actor to, to fill that role. No, well, uh, Shaquille O'Neal, the uh, NBA player, was considered, and he he's not a very good actor. Right. So it would have been, I think, if he had been chosen, it would have been a completely different film. Yeah, because it's his performance that kind of makes you believe this character. Well, everything about him, really, the uh, facial expressions, you felt his pain, you felt his sort of, uh, his, uh, his angst, and uh, and the shots just um, drew you into thinking there is, there's more to this, you know, there's more to mm-hmm. the uh, the character, the guy, and uh, and there's a truth that needs to be told, and that's, uh, that's what sort of unfurled as the film went on. Well, I think one of the, uh, one of the things that is great about it is the fact that kind of when he's first introduced, they do the um, whole kind of the axle, you know, it's down, it's pinned on the axle. So the weight on the back of the uh, prison truck is immense. So they're kind of thinking, you know, what the hell is this? Uh, and obviously so then the, he comes in and... The prison guards are looking out the window and they see the uh, the truck as it arrives and it's yeah. down on its suspension. <laughs> but it's, you know, when he comes in and it's kind of this hulking figure... And you don't see his face until he kind of comes in through the door. But then one of the first things he says is about you know, leaving the light on. Yeah. So, it's... so they're, they're almost, because of their uh, past experiences with, uh, with inmates on, the, on uh, death row, I suppose they're extremely wary. Yeah. And, uh, and when they see the, uh, the physical size of this guy, uh, there's a bit of trepidation and, um, and nervousness and... Uh, and they're, they're, they're very cautious, aren't they, in their handling of him? Well, I think the whole point is that, you know, he's built to be, he's shown to be like a gentle giant. Yeah. And obviously the only point in the film where he isn't a gentle giant is when he uh, kind of strangles Percy and then gives him the rain tumour. 
So like that whole that's the only part where he's kind of violent towards somebody else. Whereas all the other times he's very kind of uh polite and friendly. But he it was so cleverly uh, done, wasn't it, in the build up to that that uh, it didn't even seem like a particularly violent scene. The uh the character Percy deserved what he got, didn't he? Yeah. Well it's um I think the whole the whole point so there's like there's lines throughout the film. It's like when um when he's talking to the lawyer, I can't remember what his name is, but the guy who played Lieutenant Dan in Forrest Gump. Yeah. When he's talking to him and uh they're kind of saying, you know, did he just appear out of nowhere? And all this these strange kind of references. He's obviously not a very smart man as well. Which I think probably gives like you know, obviously offers the idea that maybe this guy did just appear out of nowhere one day and is just there to help people. So obviously he's suffering through trying to help these people because no matter how much he does help, there's just more people to help. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, obviously at the end of the film, uh, they kind of, they draw on it kind of, is he, do they, does he deserve to die? And it becomes, you know, he wants to die. Yeah. So, uh, the burden has, has become too much. Yeah. So looking back at the character of Percy, we, we said that uh, he deserved what he got. Uh, we first really see him when uh, when he's walking um, the coffee. He's uh, shouting the dead man walking. Shouting, chanting, dead man walking, dead man walking, causing a real stir, uh, bringing the attention of all the other inmates. So we're looking out windows and, um, and seeing this going on. And he continues to do that down the corridors and sort of into the main building uh, to the amazement, really, of all the other guards who were looking on. Um, comes across as a, uh, a thoroughly objectionable character, a real nasty piece of work. Um, in one of the early scenes, he uh, he smashes one of the uh, inmates' fingers with his baton. Yeah, I can't, I can't <coughs> remember if it's... Um, I can't remember if it's Delacroix's fingers it is yeah yeah but it's because he had the uh, bandage on his fingers the whole film yeah but... so there's a uh, a french american um character called delacroix who and, is um, we don't get to know too much about him but we assume that he's uh, he's done unspeakable act uh, really to lead to, to him being there well that, that's the that's the point of this film um how it's laid out like uh wild bill is the only person, apart from uh, John Coffey, he's the only one that they, they actually tell you what he did. They flag it up before he comes and yeah. prime you for what's what's about to happen, don't they? And then it's a very clever twist because when Wild Bill actually comes in, they assume that he's been doped because he's uh, he's acting he's absolutely vacant. He's got uh, sort of um, you know. Drooling, drooling out of his mouth and uh, and he looks like he's been uh, heavily sedated for the journey and uh, and he carries on that act for uh, well until they get him down into the mile and then uh, and then all of a sudden um, breaks into a frenzy and uh, and sort of starts um, flailing out at, uh, at the guards and um, got pretty nasty pretty quickly didn't he? Yeah well I think one of the good things about uh, Wild Bill is that he's played by Sam Rockwell, who's gone on to be a much bigger actor. Yeah. So this is a role that 
in kind of in other movie in other movies it would be a kind of bit part actor to come in to play this like this unknown face essentially. And also, and he he plays this uh, you know he plays this an extremely quite annoying character, but you're not kind of taken out of the immersive like feeling because you just kind of you look at it as the prison guards are. Yeah. So you know they're they're all getting a, a bit kind of annoyed at the guy, and you're sharing in that kind of feeling. Well, it was it was just. Um... Shocking, really, the way it uh, it went from zero to uh, to a, a sort of massive uh, brawl and um, and punched the one guy in the face and um, mm. and then uh, was strangling the other and uh, and all the while um, Percy, uh, yeah. our uh, our thoroughly objectionable um, prison guard, was just standing there absolutely quaking and uh, and and took no part or or did nothing to. Uh, to help to restrain him or, or, or anything. Um, and then later it was revealed uh, what had happened with uh, Wild Bill, wasn't it? Well, it, yeah, it was revealed that he was, uh, a, I'd assume, a kind of farmhand on the uh, family of the two of the, of the murdered daughters. And obviously by this point we already know about this uh, kind of heavenly power that uh coffee has so we don't kind of we're not we're not looking at him as the suspect anymore so when we do see that it was while bill who killed the two girls you kind of think back to the lines where he says about uh he tried to take it back but it was too late and obviously we see him do that to the to uh, mr jingles yeah but it's it's quite a juxtaposition I think it is to kind of how you see it at the start versus how you see it then yeah yeah so we haven't introduced um, Mr Jingles yet though no you mentioned, the you mentioned him. so uh, so the guards are uh, taking their break at one point and uh, and a mouse comes out of the restraint room which is a padded cell um, and he uh, he basically um, ventures into the middle of the corridor and uh, and then one of the guards snaps off a bit of um, his cheese biscuit and throws it to him, and he picks it up and eats it. And uh, and they're impressed with uh, with firstly the, um, the sort of courage of this little mouse as he comes out, and soon realise that uh, you know he's perhaps uh, a little bit special. Uh, so they feed him a bit more, and then eventually, as the film goes on, um, Delacroix. Del Delacroix adopts him as a little pet doesn't he yeah and um and grows very fond of him and of course being a, a condemned man um anything that brings a bit of joy into his life at the, that sort of late stage of his life um you know is a good thing but our character percy uh when the little mouse um breaks free and runs out um percy stamp stamps on him yeah it's it's a uh i think one of the good things about it is so with his character, we don't get told what he did to be there. But obviously, to get the death penalty, you have to have done something pretty horrific. Yeah. So, you know, Wild Bill's there for murdering three people. Uh, John Corfe's there for murdering the two girls, supposedly. So we can assume they involved murder. And the, the whole fact that, like, uh, when, he kind of, when he goes to death row, uh, 
uh, uh, not to death row, to the, on the when he walks the Green Mile, and he kind of says like, you know, you're good people. I wish you'd. I wish I'd met you somewhere else. Yeah, it's kind of a. It's almost like having Mister Jingles potentially like brought out the good in him. Yeah, and not really changed him, but kind of just brought something different to the surface. Yeah. So Mister Jingles has been stamped into the ground, and um, and then. Uh, John Coffey says, "Bring him over," and um, and cups him in his hands and um, and breathes on him, and you get a glow from the uh, from the hands, mm. and um, brings him back to life. But that didn't surprise Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks' character, because earlier well, no, in the film um, he'd already been um, subjected to uh, the special powers that Coff- Coffey had, because he'd um, taken his. Uh... I think it was urinary infection. He had a bladder infection, bladder early, infection in, he had like... early in the film. And um, at one point he said it's like uh, passing razor blades. And uh, obviously he couldn't sleep because of it. And, um, you know, the relations at home with his wife were, uh, were put on hold. And uh, Coffee called him over a couple of times and said, I need, I need to speak to you. And, uh, and, Tom Hanks' character said, "Well, I'm too busy at the moment. I've got a better fish to fry," and um, and then eventually uh, went forward. And uh, Coffee leaned leaned out and um, put his hands on him. I think and basically what's, uh, took away the infection. I think what's good about the scene is that uh, if you don't know what's coming, it's a strange one because he just kind of grabs him and then grabs his crotch. Yeah. So it's a very it kind of comes across like it's a bit. It's a bit strange. Is it? Is there going to be like a sexual assault scene in this? And then, you know, he just takes. He takes the uh, kind of infection. And obviously, it's a bit more. It's a bit brighter than the sexual assault scene. But you can kind of imagine that things like that might happen. So at that point in the film, it could have gone either way, really. Yeah. Yeah. You you weren't sure whether uh, perhaps the. Um... The trust you built up in his character um, was about to be uh, shattered completely. Well, he was I th- going I, to attack. Uh, I think um, the trust aspect comes in when he grabs Percy, and uh, that whole thing happens because then it's like it's so sudden that you kind of it throws you off. Yeah. So this you know this gentle giant just suddenly like lashes out and grabs this guy, and it's. It, it's it's meant to catch you off guard. Yeah. And obviously you've got the, I think one of the best scenes when he's, uh, Percy's kind of just come out, he's putting his belt on, and you, you know, he turns around and he just kind of looks up. And it's just, you know, you know what's, you kind of know something's coming. But it's uh, it's quite a different thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And uh, anyway, Percy, they're, um, this is the objectionable prison guard. Um, through through various um, acts that he's carried out and uh, things that he's said and um, and his old general demeanour really, uh, all the other guards are um, are cautious of him. Uh, I think they're uh, they they can't quite believe um, his character and what he's like, but apparently he's got connections because he's related to someone high up uh, in the prison service. Louisiana's uh, first lady. Yeah, yeah. 
So he's so in there, and uh, and they're they're sort of um, thinking of ways they could perhaps get it, get rid of him. Um, and they strike a bit of a deal where he wants to be out front uh, during one of the executions, um, and he wants to be the person in charge. So uh, so Tom Hanks' character um, enters into a bit of an agreement with him, saying that uh, there's another job that's available uh, that apparently he'd applied for. And, uh, and he's encouraging him to go for it. But uh, Percy then says, I would if I would if uh, if you gave me a shot at being out front. Yeah. So I think one of the uh, one of the end, one of the mirror scenes in this is um, him in the same spot as Wild Bill when they first take him from the uh, hospital. Yeah. However, I was just thinking about that then, like it doesn't actually make any sense for Wild Bill to be in the mental hospital. Because if he, you know, the insane asylum, if he's meant to be on death row, surely he'd be kind of in a holding cell somewhere rather than just standing in a hospital. I thought maybe they were going to assess him because uh, because he was in such a, a weird state when, when they got him. And maybe um, they didn't have papers that came along with him or anything explaining his... Uh, so they probably thought that it was for his welfare, it was better that he was assessed and kept there mm. until they could assess him. And then they took him down, didn't they, to the, uh, to yeah. the Green Yeah, but obviously there's, there's a good sense of irony in this with how, uh, you know, the whole, the whole time Percy is potentially going for this job at the mental, at the mental hospital. And at the end, he ends up, obviously, in, in, the, mental hospital. in the mental hospital, which... Yeah. It doesn't feel uh, it doesn't feel too on the nose, which is something that when things like this happen in films, when there's a kind of sense of irony, it can feel too kind of you know we got you there, yeah, because it doesn't really add to the plot. Whereas I think this is because um, obviously John Corfe he kind of says you know I've punished them, uh, you know referring to Wild Bill and Percy. But he hasn't killed Percy. No. So I think it's more so like having to deal, having to have, I guess, um, face your own medicine, kind of. Yeah. So obviously, while Bill, you know, murderer, I guess, kind of deserves to be murdered. Is that the idea? And then this, you know, Percy guy just deserves to have nothing, essentially. Well, he's. Um... His misdemeanors build throughout the film, don't they? So it uh, it sort of came to a uh, to a sort of uh, a climax, really, where um, he was given the, uh, the the position out front to uh, to to deal with the execution. And uh, part of the process was they put uh, a natural sponge, which was doused in water, on top of the uh, the, the prisoner's head. Yeah, and then the uh, the skull cap is put in place, and uh, and obviously the water is uh, so that the electrical current makes a very good connection. And knowingly, he uh, he chose not to actually uh, wet the sponge, so the sponge in effect was uh, like an insulator, which uh, which basically created a, a, a massive sort of uh, you know um, amount of heat to be generated, mm. and uh, and instead of being electrocuted and um, and finished off quickly and swiftly. The whole thing went on and on, and uh, and 
the people who were um, there to see um, the death taking place um, basically saw the uh, the man catch fire because of yeah, it. and uh, and all through this, um, Percy was enjoying the whole thing. And, well, no, he's, he's, the whole point is that he's not enjoying it. It's kind of like uh, he because uh, he looks away at the one at like one point. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah. Tom Hanks grabs him and he's like, "You know, you watch." Which is so. What do you think would it, would have been his motivation for doing that then? Just to uh, to well, see what would happen? I or? think it's a kind of yeah. It is a, like a sadistic kind of thing, and it's it's a strange thing because it's like there could be uh, the opportunity for remorse there, you know. So maybe he realizes they should have done it, but it's what happens after when he's kind of like. You know, I didn't know that it had to be wet or anything. Yeah. And obviously, he was there the last time they did it. He knows it had to be wet. So it's, you know, there's no use for the excuse there. No. And it's... And he showed no remorse because I'm sure he made a com- uh, a, a comment about, uh, you know, the guy deserved to die anyway. Yeah, was yeah. That, that sort of thing. Yeah. I think the only, the only weird thing about that scene uh, is when Tom Hanks... You know, where it's kind of just like it was an execution and the guy's dead. And it's just, it doesn't really make sense for him to defend uh, Percy. Because obviously he wants Percy mm. gone. Mm. And then he says that line. And it's like, if he hadn't said that, you can assume that he'd probably get kicked out anyway. Maybe he was concerned that there might be a cover up or. Um... Maybe he was storing it up for later, which uh, they they did actually uh, have retribution on uh, on yeah. Percy's character, didn't they? Um, so so what happened then uh, thereafter was um, the uh, the head prison guard's wife had uh, developed a brain tumor, and um, and so throughout a few scenes uh, he mentioned that um, she was going off to have an X-ray, yeah, and then. Uh, and Tom Hanks was uh, was obviously um, very concerned about this because they they were friends and um, and their wives had been friends as well. I think um, his actor uh, James Cromwell is really quite incredible in some of his scenes. You know, especially kind of uh, when he's saying, "You know, I don't know how to tell my wife that she's going to die." Yeah, it's like it's a motive. It's a motive in how it's written. You know, it's it's incredibly well written this film, but it all hinges on how it's delivered. Yeah, and that the delivery he gives is just you know it's perfect. Yeah, yeah. So then they hatch a bit of a plan to um, to take Coffee out of the cell and uh, and smuggle him away in the night and uh, take him out to the house and um, and see if he can work his uh, his magic on the wife. <clears throat> and this is all uh, without the knowledge of the um, the head guard, isn't it? So, yeah. uh, so he hears this vehicle pull up in the dark, and uh, and he's out there with his shotgun, uh, sort of ready to defend his property, and um, and then they quickly talk him into uh, allowing coffee to come in and um, and see if he can um, if he can offer any help, really. Yeah, I think I think. Um... It's a very well played out uh, movie in that he doesn't feel uh, there's nothing that feels kind of redundant in it and 
out of place. Like, no. You know, he keeps, like, he doesn't uh, release the tumour when he kind of takes it from her. And then obviously puts it into Percy later. But you kind of, you know, you know what's coming. Yeah. You know something's going to happen with it. And it doesn't feel like, well, why would he do that? It's more of a, that actually does make some sense here. If he can take away these things, then you'd assume he can be able to kind of pass them on. Yeah. So, so um, you know, like the bladder infection and stuff like that he takes, and the, strangely, the, you know, the entire death of the mouse. Uh, which... <laughs> Well, he, uh, he brings him most back to life, and uh, and of course that uh, <clears throat> for for uh, Delacroix, um, that's you know some some sort of uh, something nice in his life at the end of his days, really. So yeah. uh, you know that that's a good thing. Um, but with Percy's character, the um, the guard, by this time um, you haven't got a lot of patience left with him. You know, and no, uh, it's you know you uh, you sort of want him to get his uh, just desserts really. He is um, he's kind of the antagonist, I'd say. There's like this film doesn't really have an antagonist in the traditional sense. So obviously the you know the protagonist is uh, Paul, you know Tom Hanks's character, yeah, because he is the one we follow. So even though uh, John is the one we kind of see. And it's the, his story that we're interested in, like, kind of learning about. He's not the protagonist because he doesn't kind of lead it. So, but, like, antagonist-wise, Percy is probably the closest. But then when it comes towards the end of kind of um, how to kill John, it kind of it puts up in the air, like, maybe, maybe it's kind of a higher power that's the antagonist here. Mm, yeah, yeah, but certainly by that point, um, you've given up on Percy's character, yeah. haven't you? you? You really feel that uh, that he deserves what he gets, really, and um, and that rounds it off, really. Um, well, it's it's one of those things like Percy. Uh, you know, he gets he gets kind of the brain tumor, and he's essentially gone. And then the film continues with John still going to the electric chair. So instead of having it like, you know, the antagonist is gone and now it's all back to normal and it's all fine. It's more about the kind of the char the impact of kind of the choices that they've made. Yeah. And John, you know, just doesn't want to be there anymore, essentially. Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna well, I'm gonna jump uh Kind of from that point, but not from that point. So you know when, you know when he holds Mister Jingles and apparently like makes him older, like makes him kind of a, a bit more uh, immortal, and then he obviously passes some of himself into uh, Paul because he has to show him what Wild Bill did. The whole, you know how at the end, uh, kind of Paul goes, "I'm a hundred and eight, I think it is." Yeah. There's a bit. There's a line in there that doesn't make too much sense because he says about how he uh, watched his kid, so his kid who's you know grown, yeah, when he's uh, you know in 1935, but he's you. You'd have to assume that he's not kind of an adult yet, 
because you know their kind of the way they speak about him in the uh, plot like scene is more so like you know they they're out of school they're out of college so they're on their own already they're on their kind of own life yeah so he says that he saw his son die you know which if his son like did just kind of live till I don't know eighties then he would have only died a couple of years ago. If he's under an eight. Yeah. yeah. And it's because it's 60, it's it's set in, I think, the the modern stuff is, I think, uh, probably early 2000s. Because right. he says about seeing the turn of the century. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, if we assume he was born in the 1800s and then he, you know, dies in the 2000s, the whole kind of thing of his son being born, yeah, it was a bit of a dying. One. I think it's like, but I the, think if they said he's over a hundred, yeah, rather than a hundred and eight, yeah, yeah. But obviously, so I might it, have it misheard would, it. Would stand it, but... another watching, really, to uh, to look at that point, wouldn't it? Really? Yeah, um, but it's revealed where he's going from the nursing home. So when he uh, he goes down for breakfast and gets his two pieces of dry toast, uh, and he uh, takes his. Um, one of his friends, a lady um, who he confides in, and uh, and all is revealed then when uh, when he goes off up to a, a little shack, which is uh, up in the woods, and uh, and in there they've got the cigar box which has got uh, Mr Jingles, a rather aged looking Mr Jingles, who still yeah. does his little uh, circus tricks, pushing a uh, a cotton reel around and that sort of thing, but uh, albeit much slower and uh, and you know. Um, <clears throat> in a much more sort of um, sedate way, um, but obviously, as you say, um, coffee's uh, power power just... is within, and uh, and he's obviously quite an old mouse as well. I think uh, one of the things is that, like the actor uh, Dabs Greer, I'm not sure how old he was at the time, but he looks kind of uh, you know late seventies, eighties. Yeah. So if you if you take it as uh, Paul's body is about that age, you know, then if he's 100 odd, yeah, he could have another kind of 20 odd years or so of life <laughs> after, after the end of this movie, yeah. And it's uh, it's it's quite a depressing end, but he sums it up that he's had good times, doesn't he? And um, yeah, and uh, you know, he mentions that he's uh, he's seen um, the change of the millennium and um. You know, he's he's, uh, he's quite positive about some aspects of it, but but there is a bit of a, um, a sort of um, sadness a sadness to it, yeah. yeah. But I think I think it's the uh, optimism or some well, kind of optimism that he says it with. Like he's kind of uh, kind of unremorseful about it when he's kind of saying to her, "You know, I'm going to see you die." So it's uh, yeah. Yeah, it so is one I, of those I, things. The thing that stood out in the film for me was uh, was the casting of it. I thought every character was uh, incredibly well cast in the part that they played. Um, the fact that, albeit three hours, it didn't feel like there was any sort of uh, you know wasted scenes or anything. The whole thing knitted together really well. Yeah, uh, it kept you engaged. Um, very interesting film. Uh, very well shot. Um, certainly, um, 
Coffee's character, his facial expressions and uh, and you know his emotions came came across, and you you felt his pain and uh, and his angst, and um, and some of the scenes in it were extremely well crafted. Yeah, where right out of the blue, when um, Wild Bill sort of um, you know broke loose and started uh, flailing and beating and um, punching and all that sort of thing, uh, you didn't see it coming. No, it's it's a very well, the thing is, um, they they don't check if he's sedated. They just assume he is. Yeah. And obviously, because they just assume, you just assume too. Yeah. yeah. You know, you see him looking like that and you go, okay, then. You know, they, they I think they say about, you know, he must be uh, dosed up or something, but you don't think about it. So when it happens, you know, they have the little look. Yeah. And you know something's coming. But it's yeah. not a, it's not like a, um, a cheeky wink to the camera halfway through and you're like, oh, well, something's going to happen in a bit. It's instant kind of, you know, he has the look and then he's straight into the attack. Yeah. And Paul, uh, Tom Hanks's character then says, uh, says to one of the other guards, yeah. didn't you check that he hadn't been sedated? And, yeah. Uh, and he said, oh, I, I, I didn't. I just assumed. And he said, well, you won't make that mistake again. Yeah, and you knew he wouldn't because it uh, it blew up pretty quickly, and uh, it could have got worse if um, if one of the other guards hadn't uh, bashed him over the head with a baton. And all the while, Percy was sort of um, yeah, Percy's cowering in the corner. Um, I think that shows like you know, Percy is kind of uh, at the end of the day, he's a coward. Yeah, and that's really his character. It's like he's um, he's trying to get any piece of power. That he can, and obviously being in front of you know being the guy out front yeah. is the maximum amount of power he can really have in this in, in this scenario in that situation. Yeah, but he, he comes across as a thoroughly nasty, sadistic bully, um, just an objectionable character. Yeah, really. and he's got uh, he's got a bit of leverage over the other guards because he's uh, because of his family connections. And he uses that to the full. And um, so when he gets uh, the attack by coffee and uh, and pass the tumour to him, then um, then you feel that uh, you know he's 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 got what he deserves, really. Yeah. Uh, before we wrap up, I'm going to kind of pose something. So with John Coffey, where do you think he kind of came from? Because obviously you know, he has this magical power, and he seems very, very kind of self-assured that heaven and hell exist. Yeah. Well, the um, his uh, his legal um, his solicitor said that uh, you know he appeared during the time of the um, depression. And uh, and lots of people, you know, there was lots of uh, sort of movement and toing and froing of workforce. People were looking yeah. for work. People, were, you know, moving from state to state to uh, to find work. You know, it was a pretty desperate situation. So he he obviously washed up where he was, um, and that was the sort of uh, the explanation for it, wasn't it? From that point of view. Yeah. Well, I'm. I'm... What did you think? Well, I was just thinking that. Uh... To chuck out a wild speculation that the character could be a kind of modern day Jesus. Uh, yeah. Because obviously 
he comes in, helps people, and then ends up getting killed. Yeah. But other than you know, obviously it's a it's a film that does deal with biblical things. It does, and uh... so it's yeah. I think I think that's probably there's probably something in there about you know connections to uh, higher beings. Yeah. But then obviously yeah. it's Stephen King, so it could be connecting to something in another book he's done, or yeah, it could be some you know fantastical kind of alternate universe power. Just you know. I think it's one of those things that just intrigues the viewer. Well, yeah, intriguing, and um, and the film as a whole, I would say, is uh, excellent, um, excellent cinema, isn't it? Yeah, uh, you know, well written, and uh, and it leaves you sort of at the end of the film um, feeling, you know, quite satisfied that you've seen a really, really well produced and put together film. Leaves you with a few questions, but um, you know, that's the. Uh, the excellent writing of Stephen King, and the, uh, the excellent direction, and uh, and also casting ad- and adaptation acting. of yeah, uh, yeah. Frank Darabont's writings. There's a few jokes in it that actually are funny. That you know, that works. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't. You know, there's. It's not like. Um, it's, it feels like natural humor, rather than forced, like kind of comedy, because I think one of the things in movies is a lot of the time. You know, a character will come out of a line that sounds like something deliberately funny, but it doesn't sound like something that someone would actually say. Yeah. Whereas this film, you know, the lines people say sound like things people would say. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, what would you give this out of ten? I'd give it nine out of ten. What do you What do you I, give uh, What do you give on any Sunday? I gave that nine out of ten. <laughs> I I may even give it ten out of ten. Well, I'm going to give it nine point five out of ten. I'm going to give it nine point six out of ten. Right? <laughs> well, uh, I think that'll do it for this episode. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. Go and watch the other episodes. Subscribe or like it, and I'll see you next week. Thank you.